Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future here at the University of Southern California. I will soon be joined by our co-director, Mike Murphy. The title of our program, the first of this semester, is Biden 2021 and Beyond. But so much has happened in the last month that I suspect that will range over a number of topics. We're very proud of our fellows program at the center. And I'm especially proud of the fellows that we have for this semester. And they're going to be in conversation with us here today. Let me introduce the fellows. Barbara Comstock was elected to Congress in 2014 from Virginia's 10th Congressional District, served two terms, previously was a strategic advisor to both Mitt Romney and George W. Bush. And her fellows class will be a woman in the arena from intern to congresswoman. Shaniqua McClendon is the political director for Crooked Media, where she leads their political strategy and civic engagement program. Uh, Prior to Crooked Media, she served on Capitol Hill as a policy advisor to Senator Kay Hagan and a legislative director to Congresswoman Alma Adams. She's going to be teaching a course on political disruptors. Todd Purdom was 23 years at the New York Times, one of the most important political reporters in the country. He now writes for publications like The Atlantic, Politico, and Vanity Fair. He also, I should tell you, has written a very wonderful book called An Idea Whose Time Has Come about the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and a book about Rodgers and Hammerstein, the great composers of musicals in 20th century America called Something Wonderful. His course will be Politics in the Press. How did we get here? Where are we going? I'm going to start off with a kind of general question and we can just go around the horn. What did you think of the inauguration? How much difference will the change in tone matter? And how did the events on January 6th, when the Capitol was assaulted, impact what otherwise would have been an expected, important, but routine ceremony? Anybody can start. Shaniqua, go ahead. Okay. Having spent six years working on Capitol Hill, uh, what happened on January 6th was, it was just really jarring. I told a lot of people I didn't get access to the Senate floor until the day my boss was giving her farewell speech. So it was just really bizarre to see people just storm in, um, in into the chamber in the way that they did. But I think it really just made me appreciate the inauguration ceremony a lot more. We've all lived through the past four years and I know it's been pretty bad, but I think on January 6th, I realized just how much we had been dealing with and that there was still uh, more more to come. Um, on that day, I remember waking up, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock had just won um, their races in Georgia, and I thought that day would be a really exciting day, and there might be some shenanigans on the Hill with trying to overturn the election, but what ultimately happened was a mob of people tried to unsuccessfully overthrow our government. and it just brought me back into the reality of what we had been living through for the past four years. But yesterday, yeah, yesterday, uh, during the inauguration, um, just to see the contrast of what had happened exactly two weeks ago was, I, I think it, it was symbolic of just 
where our country is going. You know, we had left this really dangerous, chaotic time, hopefully behind us. I think we're still going to see some remnants of it, but we really got to turn the page and see um, a new type of leadership that would never provoke that type of behavior, um, you know, against our government. So I think what happened on January 6th played a huge role in just kind of really um, making the inauguration something special and, and sacred, quite quite frankly, um, and something that we hopefully will not forget. And I hope it sets a new tone for what we're going to see out of uh, the White House moving forward. I, I thought yesterday was a beautiful transition. It really was quite lovely. And I thought uh, Joe Biden really has handled the two months since the election very well. You know, he kind of moved on, started, you know, understanding that he was going to be president. And you just saw Donald Trump diminish day by day. And so for yesterday to see a lot of strong women, and I think Joe Biden really kind of featured a lot of strong women be on stage, it was a big contrast to January 6th, where you had these thuggish boys, unfortunately, proud boys, all of these you know, monsters, domestic terrorists, who, you know, people like the that shaman guy who lives in his mother's basement, <laughs> losers. You know, so you had these, you know, but they are violent. You know, we laugh about them, but these, it was, it was a trauma, as Shaniqua said, to have worked there. In the idea, and I, it was the same for me. I, I didn't get, when I was a staffer for 10 years, it was rare that you were actually on the floor unless you had a bill. So to see that kind of violation of the office was really something that bothered me about Donald Trump from the beginning, is that he just never seemed to rise to the office or to the occasion and realize even after he was elected to say, okay, whoa, this is big and I owe history something and his juvenile behavior for four, you know, and beyond, certainly beyond juvenile, the, the, the assault for the past two months on our institutions was really jarring. And I woke up that morning, January 6th, I, I knew something bad was going to happen. I just, in like my gut, I knew it. And I, texted and emailed my friends and family and colleagues and said, please stay home if you don't have to be there. Something bad is going to happen. But even with that, I never thought it would be what we saw and to know Capitol Hill police and all the, and, and know people. I was talking to people while they were, you know, literally under their desks and have all that brought. So to yesterday to see Amanda Gorman, that young woman who, and the poet just kind of lift everybody up and, um, Bob knows the power of a good speech and a good, good words, and she really, I just think, did a lovely job of lightening our spirits. And last night, I thought the ar- artists from across the country really represented the country. And I think people should feel good about that we survived this, and he's gone. And good riddance. God. Well, I'd agree with everything Barbara and, and Shaniqua said. I mean, it's astounding how how thrilling a small dose of normal could feel. And yesterday was really that. I was at President Obama's first inaugural in 2009 when those giant crowds were all over the mall. And, uh, you know, I walked all the way from Georgetown with my colleague, Adam Nagurney, because I wasn't sure uh, how it would ever park. And to see the, the sparsely populated stands yesterday was very sobering. But I thought, you know, I'd echo what Barbara said. I think everything that President Biden has done since November has really been pitch perfect. He hasn't put a foot wrong. He's done the right thing. He's been gracious. He hasn't been chomping at the bit or over eager. He was just letting Trump destroy himself day by day, hour by hour. Um, 
And I, I agree that last night's entertainment was remarkable. It was uh, diverse and engaging, and it had flashes of humor. Uh, for me, I got an email from my sister yesterday. Maybe the most moving moment of the day. I mean, obviously, Amanda Gorman's poem was wonderful, and there were so many moments, Lady Gaga, J-Lo, et cetera. But to see the three former presidents together uh, there in the amphitheater at Arlington and also just on the on the reviewing stand at, at the Capitol, there's something so reassuring, something so uh, moving about that great continuing, you know, small club. And also the sort of realization that whatever he does, no matter how long he lives, Donald Trump will just never be a member in good standing of that club. And maybe as time goes by, if we're lucky, he'll seem a great aberration, a great exception, a great kind of strange blip in our history and not something that is more lasting. But as to how long the mood of yesterday will last, that's another question. We already see people devolving into their kind of usual corners today, their recriminations about what to do with the COVID aid plan. Um, I see that, you know, conservative media is making a point that the president snapped at a reporter today when he asked about his vaccine plan. I didn't think he snapped so much as sort of good naturedly said, hey, 10 days ago, people were saying 100 million doses was unrealistic. And now they're saying it's aiming too low. So give me a break. I mean, and I think Jen Psaki so far is doing an excellent job in the briefing room, returning to a kind of even keeled approach. I think she surely has to be like probably the most experienced press secretary in modern times that uh, maybe Mike McCurry could come close, but, um, you know, she, this is not her first trip to the fair. So, so far I'd say the early signs are encouraging that we're, we're back to a kind of 50 yard line and, and why that should be such a cause for celebration is actually kind of sad, but it is a cause for celebration all the same. Mike, I see that you're here, Mike Murphy. You want to follow up with the question? Well, you know, for me, I miss Trump. I'm, I'm a little sad today. Sorry. Just, <laughs> Testing the equipment here. I guess it works. <laughs> what is interesting about this to me, uh, and I have the same as an anti-Trump conservative Republican, the, the same kind of sigh of relief, but normalcy is normally quite boring. It's easy to take for granted. And the, the transition to Biden was powerful because it made, after four years, normalcy seem unique and special. And to be prized and cherished, you know, now they're just going to argue over the deficit instead of questioning everybody's motives or calling for an insurrection or tweeting insults around the clock. So I think I think it also President Biden hit a bit of a perfect storm because he he was kind of everybody's second choice. He's non-threatening. Conservatives are like, well, they could have done worse. You know, there's just no real sharp edges to him at a time when people just want competency and they want to stop the drama. And I think Biden is, is in a lucky position for a politician because his core thing is exactly what the country's looking for. You know, it, it was kind of a, as I said, a bit of a perfect storm. He's ideologically a center-left Democrat. He is not going to call for the revolution. He is temperamentally very old school. He understands the job of a president not just as head of government, but as head of state, which is something Donald Trump never understood. And that his goal is to remind us of what the values that bring us together are as Americans and to kind of raise that high lantern for us to defeat problems we have. And right now we got no shortage of problems. So I think Biden was exactly kind of what the country wanted as a 
change from Donald Trump and his excesses and madness. And so even though to get to your question, Bob, and wrap up, this thing was, it was clearly the inauguration of a damaged country. You know, the mall empty. Uh, now, they did the best job they could with the flags and everything, but the, the mall is empty between the worst pandemic we've had in modern history and the fact that nobody's tried to do to the capital, the seat of our democracy, um, what those insurrectionists did since the Redcoats, 1814. So, I, uh, the, uh, uh, so the, the point being that Biden was honest about that, but he's also, I think, the anecdote to a lot of that. Now, politics will still be politics. Uh, that won't change. I think a political stress for the Republicans or a challenge will be, well, you're the proven villains. So if you're not for Biden, you're not part of recovery. But um, all in all, I, I thought Biden wisely didn't push, push that partisan blame game at all. Instead, he went for unification. And I think heads were nodding across the country. So he's off to a great start. Yeah, I thought I actually thought Biden's uh, inaugural address was the best one I've heard since uh, 1961. It hit all the right notes. It was as if this guy who first talked, for, I first talked with in the mid-1980s, and he talked about running for president, and he tried and tried, and it didn't work out. It's almost as if Providence saved him for this moment, because he does fit the moment. But now let's go on to another question, and that's about what's going to happen from here. What are the chances that he's going to get the kind of Republican cooperation he needs on issues like COVID relief? Or are the Democrats going to have to turn to doing this through the budget process known as reconciliation? Anybody can start this off who wants, but Barbara, you've been there? Sure. Well, I, I do think focusing on COVID first is obviously the smartest thing to do. And I think the centrists that he knows well, people like Susan Collins and actually, you know, Mitt Romney, um, Lisa Murkowski, these are the people who I think he can turn to to govern. I think the House, you know, I think the key relationships are going to be, you know, President Biden and uh, Mitch McConnell and getting, and, and I think they both have such a respect for the institution. I think that's why, you know, you're seeing, I, I think you're going to see more calm with the two of them in charge and, you know, I'm pleased, you know, living in an area where a lot of these people work, that we have people who respect the institutions. So I do think there's an opportunity to do that, but I think it's going to have to be compromised now. And that's something that both sides don't like to do. You already hear Republicans saying, oh, we don't want to spend any more money. The same people who were saying, okay, we can do 2000 before the Georgia election. And then, you know, others on the left wanting to go really far. So I think, hey, you know, count to 51, work together and, and get a centrist result and and what the president's doing on speeding up getting the vaccines out you know that that's going to be what everybody wants so we can get back out there and i thought it was very smart for him to talk about getting back in school more the governors are talking about that whatever hybrid it has to be but getting our kids back into school yeah i i am cautiously optimistic and i think we have to sideline people like republicans do it's, it's upon us like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who tried to take this thing over the edge in a way that was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Republican like Mike, you know, in case people didn't realize that. I am, I'm a pretty conservative Republican, but I, I want to see impeachment finished too. It looks like that's going to be mid-February, but I want to see this bill done first, and I want to see the country get the health focus back there and then get the economy going again. Todd? Well, as Barbara said, it is a challenge because people like Mitt Romney have already signaled maybe they think 
Biden's proposed COVID relief bill is too big, too much money. I guess I just was checking my phone a minute ago. I think Senator Thune has kind of said some critical stuff about it. People who are, you know, in the reasonable caucus are worried about it. So he's going to have his work cut out for him. In the meantime, he's getting a lot of pressure from his left flank in a very narrow uh, majority in the House that he needs to go big and go fast. You see commentators, Ezra Klein in the New York Times today, saying how the Democrats could lose in 2022 and deserve to. My former Atlantic colleague, um, uh, Derek, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, having a senior moment, but there's, there's a lot of criticism from the left that Biden needs to do what Obama didn't really do, which is go big, go fast, go clear cut. So I think it's, it's going to be hard. Uh, I, I do think there have to be some practical things that they can do together. They, they surely can do some further aid to people who uh, are hurting. They can do some extensions of uh, unemployment benefits and rent moratoriums. And presumably they can get some, whether the Republicans want aid to states and localities in general or not, they can presumably get some stuff out to states and localities for vaccine distribution because it looks like the Trump administration simply shipped the vaccine out and didn't really have any coordinated plan and left it to the states who don't have the infrastructure, as we're seeing here in California, to get it out readily. Uh, and, you know, these horrible stories of vaccine doses going to waste because people are not either, you know, not taking it or they can't get it to people fast enough and it spoils. So, so I think that's really the challenge is to, is to get, you know, strike at that, that first. And, and then they will have to deal. They'll have to deal with impeachment. Perhaps today the suggestion is they'll deal with that in February. So. Shaniqua, how yes. big, how bold? I mean, so I have two ways I think about things. One is what is practical given the constraints of Congress and our, um, uh, and our politics. And then I have what I, you know, my pie in the sky. Everything should be super progressive and super big and help as many people as possible. Um, I, I do recognize that Democrats have very slim majorities, especially in the Senate, but the House isn't that large either. And in, especially in the House, you have a lot more, um, there's a wider spectrum of, of members there. So you have this really progressive part of the Democratic caucus, but you also have a lot of moderates who are the reason that we're even able to have a majority um, in the House. Um, but, you know, I think co for me, COVID should transcend politics. There are a lot of people who are trying to figure out how they're going to pay for their next meal, if their kids are going to actually get a quality education over the next few years. And so I think Biden should go as big as possible. Uh, the thing that always happens once a bill gets over to Congress is they will moderate it. And so let Congress do that. Let the people um, who have to represent lot narrower constituencies determine what's okay um, on the ground uh, or, you know, in, in the bill and what they need. And kind of to your other question about, you know, how things will work with the Senate, I think I'm a lot more uh, pessimistic about things uh, getting back to a good place. And hopefully I don't sound too partisan, but I think if today is any indication, we're not going to see a lot of compromise or working together. Mitch McConnell has said, you know, pretty much if Democrats don't agree to not changing the filibuster rule, that he will not, that he will filibuster their operating resolution that would allow Democrats to actually take control in committees um, and actually have ownership over, over the Senate. And so you know, if that's the starting point for someone who got rid of the filibuster to approve Supreme Court justices, you know, I, I, one thing I will always say about Mitch McConnell, he is a smart man and he's a good politician. Um, but as long as that hypocrisy is still there, I just don't have a lot of faith that we're going to see um, compromise. But I do think that, uh, 
the impeachment vote or not the impeachment vote, but um, the, the trial vote, we'll see if that happens. Hopefully it does. But um, I think that will be very telling for how much compromise can happen, because if you have a majority of Republicans still refusing to say that they will not stand behind a president who, you know, encouraged people to try to overthrow our government, uh, I think we have a lot more problems than we thought and that they go a lot further than, than Donald Trump. Well, that may take us to Mike. I'm going to I want to come to you because I know what you want to talk about. There are divisions inside the Republican Party, too. And the question is, where do they go from here? And Mike, I think you had a... Yeah, just before we get to that, I'd love to chat. But just on this matter of the, the, the tool of reconciliation, I, I think he will use it because it's all he's got. You know, one of the political challenges that the president has is his progressive left is fired up. From their point of view, we beat the bad guys. They're horrible. Keep going. But he doesn't have the political power to do that. And, you know, Biden is one of the few people who's been able to cut constructive deals with Mitch McConnell. He's been criticized from the left for doing too much of that. But it's the only route because they're inside the Republican Party to kind of pivot to what what you asked now, Bob. The, The debate raging just politically, especially in the House, but and I'd be curious what Barbara thinks about this. One theory is, my God, we can't get arrested in the suburbs anymore. That's why under Trump, we've lost everything. We've lost specials. We've, we've lost state legislature. We've lost a ton. But in the House, we're only six points away. And the, the House has always struggled with their messaging. Even in a group of Democrats, they lost seats. So you've got part of the House caucus saying politically, no, 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 oppose. Get out the old Tom Daschle playbook against Reagan. Oppose, 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 oppose. And we can grind our way to six or seven seats and get control, particularly in the midterm elections of a first-term president, where historically there's a bit of a, a buyer's remorse punishment vote. And that's it's, it's like the football analogy. We're only you know six yards away. Do we run the ball or do we do we throw it? Well, if we throw it, there's more risk, but we can get bigger bigger gains. Now the Senate world, little they're looking at, at Pennsylvania where they're losing Toomey was a tremendous politician, and it's rare to find a repub these days that can be competitive there. Um, you know, Ohio could come to life. There, there are several Senate seats where that suburban argument is more powerful. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of churning and fighting between the factions inside the party, what the best strategy is. But I can say if, if Biden can't get in the compromising business, um, they're going to go to the full opposed business. People argue that's the better politics. And finally, I'll just say in the end, one thing Biden has going for him is, and, you know, you can argue from your R.D. point of view if this is true, but I, I had a bunch of friends in the leadership back in the day, and they would always say, you know, President Obama was great at talking about compromise, and we'd shuffle over the White House, and we'd be told, give me 98% of what I want. We're calling it a compromise. Biden has tools Obama didn't have because Obama was never interested in calling up senators and asking about their nephew getting into West Point or whatever. Biden lives for that stuff. He's really, you know, he's a legislator at heart and a kind of a lion of the Senate. So he'll do all that. And to the extent you move eyeball personalities around to make incremental progress, it, I think Obama was good for not doing that much. I think Biden will try every trick there is he might get a little little distance for it in the Senate because they are more interested in the bourbon vote, that kind of thing. The House is going to be tough, in my well, view, but I'd be curious what Barbara thinks about it. Well, I, I think it's going to be important to not, you know, if, if the 
if the filibuster rules, you know, if they change the filibuster rule and do that, then I think the whole, you know, working together and all of that, then that does get off the table. So I do think it's important. I think if that gets worked out and there's some sense of comedy, you know, comedy and working together there, then I think that's actually going to help impeachment go smoother because I think there are Republicans and certainly Mitch McConnell has indicated that he's open to it, who if you bring up um, Mike Pence as a witness, which is what I do, bring up Bill Barr, talk about what went on for the past two months. You know, there's lots of good, you know, they were all witnesses to what happened. I think that, you know, I think the party wants, there needs to be a cleansing and move him on. But then you have to look at the fact that we're a 50-50 country, that we ended up really, even though Democrats do have the House and the Senate, it's by the narrowest of margins. And having had my first election in the state house in 2009, it was very, I was able to run against the Obama overreaching, which in my area that had voted for Obama, they snapped back. So I think a lot of people don't quite understand that because the fringes of each party kind of govern, but the majority is captured in these swing areas. And when you go too far, it snaps back. So some of our guys might think, hey, let the Democrats go too far. Now, I think that might have worked if you hadn't had January 6th. But now with those images, I think it's really incumbent upon both our House and Senate guys to work together and make this, you know, calm things down. You know, everybody wants to just get a breather here. It's like we've all been living, you know, in a very abusive environment. And doesn't it feel great that we've gotten out of it? So I think people want us to stop fighting. And I hope both sides do that. Just one thing I'll add. Um, I think the COVID response is going to be really important here. Um, Mm -hmm. If Biden does a good job, like that will be something that people remember and they'll be grateful for. And possibly he won't suffer as much uh, in in the midterms. But also people, I mean, there are people who are actually in need right now. So in addition to actually fighting the virus, providing economic relief, if that starts to happen, I think Biden is in a really unique position um, to be responding to a a huge crisis that isn't just impacting a, a small subset of our electorate. And so, you know, things could turn out differently in the midterms. Um, and, you know, I think COVID is the only kind of exception for that. I don't think you can look at immigration and criminal justice reform and, and go as far as he could on COVID. But I think at least on COVID, he should go, go you know, as big as he can, because I think he'll have a lot more leeway there. Republic, I mean, this, and it's not red or blue in terms of who's suffering from COVID. So it would be smart for Republicans to support, continue to support big efforts on that. And I think another area that should be bipartisan is what are we going to do about these kids who've lost a year of education and particularly most disadvantaged who are really behind? They need a remedial program now. And I think that would be an area where you could see a lot of, you know, coming together. There's an interesting argument kind of bubbling up in in conservative fiscal circles because somebody said that we'd forgotten our fiscal conservatism during Trump, and that's totally true. It's unbelievable. But uh, there's an argument that a lot of COVID spending now will, the quicker you do it, the more money you make later on economic growth. Uh, Because when COVID goes away, the economy comes back more or less. Now we're still leveraged to the hill. Low, low interest rates are a mixed blessing. But the, the quicker employment comes back, sales tax revenue comes back. One of the biggest fights in the Republican world is extending unemployment benefits. Good idea. Unemployed people are getting killed or they're becoming unemployed from COVID. 
blank check to big bankrupt states to cover their COVID problems. That's where the, the Republican fiscal conservatives get a little hinky, and we don't have to debate that here, but that's like a sticking point. But the quicker people go back to work and retail opens up, sales tax and all the stuff the states have to have comes back. So there's actually a fiscal conservative argument moving around now that like, yes, you know, let's not slow this down. Do something almost as big as Biden wants now. Uh, and, and more than anything else, get get the vins and arms because that will create economic growth and an economic comeback. And by the way, it's great politics for Biden. If he wants to win the midterms, that's too part punch. Vaccinate the country, ride the economic comeback and remind everybody when it comes campaign time that the Republicans are the Red Coast. So I uh, agree with the Shaniqua that there there could be a different midterm reality this year than kind of the, the traditionalists are thinking about. Uh, yeah, uh, we've mentioned impeachment, but we haven't talked about it. Uh, so maybe we could talk about it both in terms of how it fits historically with, with other impeachments uh, and what we think is likely to happen and what should happen. Todd, you want to start because you were you were covering all this during the Clinton impeachment. Yeah, I mean, I was covering the Clinton impeachment, uh, and I thought I'd never live to see another story like that. And then the recount came along, and then nine one one came along, and then you know Trump's election. And I was covering Trump's impeachment a year ago, right now, this week in Washington for the Atlantic. And uh, you know, as we remember, Mitt Romney's the only person who uh, voted to convict, and there were uh, maybe three uh, colleagues totally who voted to call more witnesses. The trial wasn't really in any meaningful sense a trial. It was a kind of a, I don't know what you call it. It was a, it was a, it was a spectacle. Uh, but the notion that there would be a critical mass of Republicans willing to consider convicting Trump now as a means of purging from the party is a fascinating prospect to me. And I think that, I think Barbara made, made, made an excellent point and, and Mike too, that it partly depends on what happens in these early days with the power sharing agreement, with the filibuster, with the basic modus vivendi of a 50-50 Senate, what will happen? And I mean, I think one risk for the Democrats is they shouldn't do anything in the short term that will hurt their chances of, say, getting a conviction of Trump three weeks from now or six weeks from now. And it, it is three-dimensional chess. And I, I, you know, Mitch McConnell is the smartest, uh, craftiest person you could imagine. Chuck Schumer is not stupid either. He has a few more tools than he did a year ago. So uh, I, I think that's that's it's the sequencing that's going to be very important now about how these things happen. And I think what happens with each of these things that are looming will affect what comes next. And and by the way, my senior moment, it was Derek Thompson of The Atlantic who wrote that, <laughs> that Biden should go big and bold and fast. But, uh, you know, he'll he'll be limited in doing that. Uh, Barbara, your 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 party uh, had its third ranking member in the House, Liz Cheney vote to impeach Donald Trump, uh, the daughter of, of former Vice President Dick Cheney. And now people are calling for her removal. I'm already working and, and helping her. And, uh, and I think if the party does that, then they will destroy any chance of, you know, it, it, you know to take a strong woman and attack her for, you know, standing up on what Kevin McCarthy said was a vote of conscience would be a huge mistake. Not that the Jim Jordans and Matt Gates of our party and the other goofballs wouldn't do that. But uh, I, I think she's going to have more strength than people realize. I'm, I'm so proud of, you know, just, I mean, just a friend and, 
you know, she cares about this institution the way Joe Biden does, the way her father does, the way I think all of us do. And so if this isn't impeachable, what is? And I think uh, probably, I guess, Mitt Romney, Mike, I, maybe Liz are among the Republicans who supported every impeachment in our lifetime. Right? I guess we'll actually support the last Trump one. I, I did. So, I mean, from Nixon to the two uh, Trump ones, I've, I've been uh, four for four. And I do think, for, so the political hygiene for accountability for all the things that Republicans say they believe in, I think this is going to be important. And I actually think it will be an easy vote if the trial is done well. And if they, if they just bring in the obvious witnesses who were badgered for the past two months by the president and who will be able to provide very impeachable, unconstitutional, anti-democratic behavior right from the you know, president's mouth, you know, explaining those things all up to the time when the vice president was hearing hang Mike Pence, thanks to the vice pre- I mean, the, Donald Trump attacking him for, for weeks. Quickly, Bob, Mary, are you hearing what I'm hearing, which is interesting to me, that the run in the caucus or the conference against uh, Liz Cheney is kind of becoming more a referendum on the Freedom Caucus, which is, you know, has limited popularity in the wider conference. And I, I know some pretty savvy kind of handicapper members who think she is going to survive. Are you, are you yeah, hearing I, that I same do. thing? No. Yes, no, yeah. I do, because I think you know, how, those guys have had too much control. And if you want to see how well the Freedom Caucus can govern, look only at Mark Meadows, who, you know, the worst yeah. staff in history. So I think a lot of, the, the, now the problem is we have a lot of new members in the caucus and they don't realize how, incom- you know, I, I don't think Jim Jordan, I may be wrong, but I don't think if he's passed a bill, I'm not aware of it. And it certainly isn't significant in his entire time in Congress. Certainly Matt gave his mask and mocking COVID. So if we're going to be ruled by those guys, then you're going to be in a permanent minority. So I think there, that, that would be a bad vote. Kevin McCarthy has stood up for Liz. And then I think you get over to the Senate and you have some of our members, you know, I think you already have five or six, certainly someone like a Pat Toomey who's retiring, Richard Burr who's retiring, others who may retire. It, would, it should be an easy vote because They've seen presidents come and go, and I, they've never seen somebody whose behavior is so off the charts. We're going to turn to questions in one minute, but I want to ask Shaniqua one related issue on impeachment. Is impeachment a big distraction? Should Democrats be doing this? Should the process move forward? I absolutely think so. I was talking to someone about this today, and there are so many challenges in front of us that have a direct impact on people's everyday lives. And I can see why there's an argument that we should be focused on COVID and all of these issues that are right, uh, right in front of us. But if we, if Donald Trump is not, you know, if the Senate does not hold a trial, I think that's going to send a message to a lot of people that what happened on January 6th was okay. And that, you know, things didn't get too bad. So we're just going to put that behind us. But, you know, five people died. One was a, um, a capital, a U.S. Capitol police officer. And, to not focus on that, it really would make me question how committed uh, members are to actually defending our democracy and making sure that it's strong. These impeachment was put, uh, impeachment is an option because our founding fathers never wanted 
it to be used probably because a president um, shouldn't be doing things that disgrace the office. But um, I think this even went further than just disgracing the office. You know, it felt more like treason to me to literally tell a group of people who are angry and riled up to go storm the Capitol to make sure that an election that voters participated in and was fair and free was overturned. Um, That's just not what the country stands for. That's not why this country was founded. Um, And I think that not just Democrats, but all of our elected officials in in Congress need to, well, the House has already voted, but in the Senate need to send a clear message that this is not okay. And we will continue to hold people accountable, um, including anyone who's a current or former U.S. president for for doing things like that. And I I mean, I also hope they hold their own colleagues accountable. um, But I think the first step is holding... uh, Donald Trump accountable. And then that would include the vote to not allow him to run again. And it would take benefits away from him. So, for example, he's not getting classified briefings, which I don't think after what we saw, we would want him to get that because it it would that would be also. That's the easier pitch for Republicans. So you never run again. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think convict him first. Yeah, that's the hard part. I know, exactly. Now, right now, I'll just say, I think there will be a trial. And I think Democrats are playing with a little bit of fire because I think they assume that McConnell's Dracula and therefore if he wants to delay impeachment, he's against impeachment. The way I read that is he doesn't have the votes now and he needs time. The thing that's going on behind the scenes in all this is big business America, like a python around the neck, is cutting off the money. And that is language they understand. No senator wants to run for re-election being outspent five to one on media. So I think McConnell wants to give the Python more time to squeeze. And if I were Schumer, I would just say to McConnell, look, it's going to come down to you and your 17. If you got them, what do you need? And if you need three more weeks, I'm willing to make that bet. Because if I ram it now and you don't have them, then, you know, no, no outcome, which ought to be Trump being impeached. But anyway, Bob, I know you want to get the question. Yeah. Let's go to questions from uh, the folks who are on this call. Erica, you want to you wanna call on people? Yeah, so we have a few questions in the chat, uh, but I see our friend Sean Daniel has his hand raised. So why don't we start with you, Sean, and thanks for joining us today. I'm profoundly honored to be asked. Here's my question to everyone. The conventional wisdom is that in the midterms, the House and the Senate gain seats for the opposition party, which in this case is the Republicans. If the vaccine is widely distributed, and with that comes an attendant recovery. Might that conventional wisdom be flipped on its head? Uh, yes, I think so. If Biden gets a big economic surge and he doesn't let the House Democrats get to find his team AOC. And second, um, I don't see the hacks on tap mug back there in the background. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's going to be up for grabs either way. And it's not going to be traditionally what you might think because of what happened on January 6th, because of impeachment, and because nobody really quite knows how we're going to deal with a post-Trump, post-pandemic world. And I think if Republicans don't rise above and and realize there needs to be new thinking, both politically post-Trump, but also how we address um, the pandemic, then they will suffer from that. And if they do things, stupid things like going after Liz Cheney, when they already have, you know, we just, we were fortunate to be able to get more women and more minorities. And if they go after, you know, our strongest woman, that would be, that would certainly backfire also. So I I think it's traditional, conventional wisdom doesn't really apply this time. 
the only thing I'd add, which probably seems a, a little distant from what we're actually talking about is, you know, Trump disrupted the way politics look, but especially on the left, a lot of people who are not paying attention to politics at all woke up after the election and said, I need to do something. And something we've seen at Crooked is that, you know, we had 300,000 people sign up for a volunteer program that we ran. And everyone is like, what can I do next? I'm not done with this. I'm going to keep engaging. And I think after seeing um, wins in Georgia with Trump not on the ballot for Democrats, I think we're going to see a new level of engagement. So that I think is separate from COVID. But I I really think that things are going to start to start to change. Maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic, um, but I don't think things are just going to work out the way they normally do anymore. I think we're going to see a lot of grassroots efforts and Republicans will have to have good candidates to go up against the effort that's going to be um, happening on the left. But that could happen on the right, too, as people look to, you know, take back the party uh, away from Trump. Yeah, Republicans are going to have to find different ways to put coalitions together and they need to become more relevant in the suburbs. So kind of clinging to the political dead corpse of Trump is not going to get that turnout. For the <laughs> so he, you know, it really is going to have to be, everybody has to learn how to grow the party and the coalition and not depend on a Trump coalition. Next question. I want to get to some of the questions in the chat here. We have a question from David Gibbons and he asks, is anyone concerned about news media, social media, and progressive Democrats wanting to silence people that don't agree with them? Yes. I mean, I think it's a legit issue. I, I The problem with some of the bellwether conservative issues that ought to have of respectful debate is Trump becoming occasionally brushing against them delegitimizes them. But I worry about cancel culture and things like that. I think it's something, though, that we did see, Mike, that the deplatforming of Trump by the major social media outlets has not just silenced him, but reduced exponentially the amount of misinformation and disinformation, yes. deliberate disinformation yes. floating around in the ether of the Internet. And I think that these executives, they're going to have to tread carefully. They're going to have to realize there are legitimate issues here. But I think they're going to have to realize that, that, that they've exercised enormous discretion and power in the name of let it all flow. And, and I think uh, we've seen the results of that. And I, and I think January 6th was one result of that as well. So, so I'm not sure whether there's going to be, uh, you know, a massive move toward you know, re-regulation re of media and regulation of the Internet. But, but I do think the society as a whole has some serious questions it has to grapple with about mediation of truth and fact. And, and I, don't, I don't know where that's going to lead, but I think it ought to be a robust debate. I I think people, free speech is very, very important. Um, But just, you know, I Mm -hmm. heard some of the misinformation in widely circulated advertised political advertisements, like going around in Florida, you know, talking about babies being aborted after after birth, you know, and the ads were just running. And so, you know, those kinds of messages are spreading across social media. And it's, it's a really sticky situation, but we have to do something because if the outcome of that kind of information circulating around is what we saw on just, uh, January 6th, I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. You know, the Pizzagate incident in D.C., if, that is, if that's happening around the country and people are actually getting to act on uh, this information that they believe to be true, uh, I think we'll start, if we count that as free speech, we'll start to see um, a lot more harm coming from uh, having such a wide kind of definition of that versus figuring out 
where is the line? Um, I, I don't think that's going to be easy at all. But unfortunately, it's something we're going to have to grapple with. Oh, sorry, Barbara, I was just going to say it was a subtle line that Biden had, but it was a powerful one when he said yesterday that uh, lies were spread for power and profit. Right, profit right. was a, blo- a shot across the bow of Fox. It was a shot across the bow of the uh, media, you know, the Internet, the companies, the, the social media companies. And it was really a way of saying uh, this let everything flow culture is a money-making culture and the algorithms uh, of social media are intended to get the maximum number of eyeballs and the maximum number of, you know, uh, revenue for those uh, entities. And I think that was, uh, if he's serious about that, that could, that could mean something. The irony that we have here now with, uh, is, is that you have more disinformation at a time when people can look up things so easily. I have, you know, this, the whole QAnon phenomenon is just so, it, I think we have to, as a party, but as a country, because I think it goes beyond the Republican Party, even though we've got a crazy, you know, crazy people who are running around doing this. But is at a time when you can disprove things very easily, people aren't. I mean, it was very frustrating over the past two months, because when the president would just say, he said so many false things, you couldn't even keep up with it and, and just disprove so many of these things. Now, I don't think it's going to be hard to match lie for lie, you know, anytime in the future, hopefully a politician like Donald Trump. So they say, you know, bad cases make bad law. So let's not make the law. And in full disclosure, I work with tech companies. So I happen to think that they're, you know, new disruption and helpful in getting information out there. But I know in my own sort of political world, you know, over the past two months, I've had people, you know, mad at me, obviously, because I'm, I was supporting you know, I, I was saying all of the attacks in Georgia and Arizona were all ridiculous and they had no proof and they were losing time and again with, thankfully, the wonderful conservative judges that Mitch McConnell got in there all told Donald Trump that he's full of BS. And so I think we need to get Republicans need to be really forthright in confronting QAnon. Because I, I, I had people who'd say, well, this is, you know, this is my view. And I'd send them like, well, you are factually wrong. Here's the number of votes. And you're saying something that just is provably stupid and false. You know, it's just not even a question. You're telling me when it's night. And they say, well, that's my opinion. It's like, well, no, it's not. So you really, and these, and these just aren't, you know, people think it's not somebody, I mean, you have educated people. And in fact, a lot of the QAnon people who have the higher educations, they tend to be the worst. If you saw the New York Times story about the QAnon Harvard graduate. And so this is something we all have to work at cutting out because people have just come to believe ridiculous things. And I don't think it's social media's fault. I think there's, you know, we, we just have people say a lot of outrageous things out there and they need to be called out a lot more. For example, like Adam Kinzinger is like daily going after this QAnon crew in Congress. And I think he's doing a great job, but I think we need dozens more members to do that. Them and get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> Erica? So many questions. Thank you all for your questions. They are pouring in. Uh, Emily Burke, Shaniqua, just a quick shout out. She gives you a shout out to you and to Cricket. She says she's a newly engaged citizen. Thanks for being partner to you. Thanks. Uh, so Neil Maslin has a question. He's asking, how comfortable would the country be in the worst case scenario of the president not being able to complete his term? 
Well, they'd be heartbroken. Biden is what they want, or what many of them want, a majority, clear majority, and what even more than that of them need. You know, the, the country would march forward, but it would be a heartbreaking thing. It seems he's got a new spring in his step and seemed pretty, you know, yeah. hybrid from what we saw, whereas Donald Trump looked very low energy, don't you think, Mike? <laughs> I think so. I saw the footage of him getting off the plane to one lonely SUV in Florida. It was like the end of Marcos. You know, everything but steamer trunks full of shoes. So, yeah, I, I think, frankly, Biden has a snap to him now he didn't have during the primary campaign. Yeah, I, I found it fascinating that George W. Bush told uh, Jim Clyburn that he was the savior. Uh, and Clyburn said, why? He said, because the only guy who could have beaten Trump was Biden. And Biden's here because of you. Do we have another question? Sure. This is from Gary Stevens. What's going to be done about the division in America in terms of politics? He feels the advent of identity politics has contributed to the extremism and tribalism. How is Biden trying to uh, bring people together? Well, Biden had a very uh, communitarian message. He, he, I, I'm one of these identity politics critics, too, and I was very pleased that Biden focused his whole speech on the national identity of Americans not group versus group, federation of groups and grievances. So I think, I, and Biden didn't really play that game in the primary either. So I, I think Biden is kind of old school, um, big central idea of equality to unite the country rather than the, the groupism that identity politics can, can spark on both sides. So I, 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 think, I think Biden gets it from that point of view, but we'll see. I guess I don't necessarily uh, qualify identity politics as divisive. I think we all have identities. And when we step into the political space, we, you know, put those um, at the forefront of the policies that we want to see um, passed that will, um, that will help us. I think, honestly, what needs to change, um, there's a lot of things, but I think our media, I think that people have the ability to self-select what information that they're receiving. And it just confirms the things that they already believe. Um, and they get entrenched in those things. And they don't have I mean, they have it, but that everyone doesn't take the opportunity to kind of understand uh, where other people are coming from, how they came to believe what they believe. Uh, and if there's a way that we can come to, to something that helps as many people as possible. Um, but I, I really do think building on the question we were just um, uh, chatting through around misinformation, um, but even stepping away from that and just diversifying the, the news that we're consuming. I think that's going to be really important to, to bring people together because if we're not seeing other people's perspectives and understanding what their needs are um, and only continuing to center ourselves, it's pretty much impossible for us to kind of generally come together because so many of us have such different experiences in this country. Well, and we should be able to have, you know, I, I think hopefully, I, I think because Biden is, has these relationships, even with people who he strongly disagreed with over the years, hopefully we can get back to that idea of you can disagree with somebody on the tax rate and you can fight it out on the floor, you know, on the floor in the House or the Senate, just the way Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, you know, they went at each other in their arguments, then they went to the opera. You know, we need to get back to that. You can actually not think someone's a bad person because you disagree with them on, on you know, on some pretty big issues, but, you know, we all work it out and then we do it. And I think Biden has a very, and I think actually Congress and the Biden administration is more diverse than we've ever had. 
So as you look out over that House and Senate floor, you're seeing more diversity than you've seen in years before. There's more women. The Republican Party, one thing I focused on is getting more women and minorities there. We have more diversity. So hopefully they will stand up in, in our caucus for you know those kind of different views. Not, but I, I think that's getting back to that we can disagree without being ugly is that, that's where Trump just took it way off the rails, where being ugly was something in and of itself. You know, that was a value. And people like, say, oh, he's fighting. He's like, no, he's just being a jerk. I want to use a stronger word <laughs> than jerk. But that, I think we got to, I'm sick of people like that who just think you have to be obnoxious and get in everyone's face. And so I think anybody who's doing that in your face stuff, back up and try and see the other side of it and you know, get back to being civil. This, he, he really talked about stability. And I, I think people are dying for that. But let's squeeze one more question in here. All right. Uh, if God, this is from Scott Keene. If God forbid the panic, pandemic is still happening in places in the world in 2022, do the Democrats have a chance? And I'll start off by saying the pandemic will still be in places in the world in 2022. I think the big test for Biden is can he get people in this country inoculated? Now, beyond that, the leading nations, the, the leading economic powers, need to give aid to these third world countries so they can get their people inoculated. Otherwise, you run the risk that the pandemic starts up again. Yeah, what yeah, we've learned about COVID politics is it's about action, not words. And that'll be the measure Biden is you know, held to. He yeah. owns it now. I mean, that was a big reason, aside from being obnoxious, a big reason Trump lost was COVID. So I think that will be. But if Republicans block help and, and aren't sort of part of the solution, they'll suffer for that, too. Yeah, I was pretty much just going to say that, you know, if we can hold Trump accountable, I mean, we're we held him accountable for a lot of things. But I think COVID was a big factor. And if Democrats can't figure out a way to to address this, um, Republican obstructionism aside, if that's not a factor, then as a Democrat, I think that they should uh, face the consequences of not dealing with this. On that happy note, I think we're going to conclude. This has been a great discussion. Our next program on February 4th will, is called the $74 million voter question. Why did Trump draw as much support as he did? Join us for that. And I want to thank our new fellows. What a terrific group. And I think how enlightening it's going to be for students to interact with each of you. Thanks, and we'll see you later. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 